Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. And this week, I hosted a special Guardian Live event where I spoke to the former Secretary of State and former Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, America stopped last weekend to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And Hillary Clinton and I talked about her memories of that day, where she was and what she felt, given that she was the senator for New York at the time. We talked about how American politics has changed since those attacks and whether or not the action the United States took after 9-11, particularly in Afghanistan, had made the world a safer place or whether it had all been in vain. We talked about feminism, we talked about the White Lotus on TV, and we talked about whether she would ever consider running for the White House again. This was our conversation. Hillary Rodham Clinton, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us uh, with for this Guardian Live event. Thanks so much for joining us uh, from your home in Chappaqua, New York. I've been having lots of conversations over the last few days and weeks with people about 9-11. And the first question to all of them is what I'm going to put to you first tonight, which is just where were you on 9-11 and what do you remember of that day? I was on my way to uh, the Senate uh, for my day of work when the first plane hit And we thought, like so many did, that it was just a terrible, tragic accident. And I drove to the uh, Senate building and on my way, the second plane hit. So by then we knew, of course, it was not an accident. It was an act of terrorism. Uh, Our uh, staff, as was the entire Senate and the Congress being uh, evacuated uh, to safety because there was a very legitimate fear that the next target would be the U.S. Capitol. Because I was a senator, my colleague and I, Chuck Schumer, uh, flew to uh, New York the next day. And I will never forget, first, we were the only plane in the sky besides fighter jets that were providing a, a cap, a cover over the East Coast. Then we got into a helicopter at LaGuardia Airport and flew over Ground Zero, Uh, And it was truly as much of a depiction of hell, Dante's Inferno, whatever one wants to envision, uh, much more 
overwhelming than the TV screen, which of course had to limit what it saw. And I spent the entire day then in New York before uh, going back to Washington uh, late that night to start working on on the recovery uh, program that uh, was needed. Did you imagine then that the consequences of what you had just seen from the air as you went over in that helicopter, that the political consequences of that would be enduring for 20 years. And I'm thinking quite specifically because it was a matter of days later, I think it was on September the 18th, uh, 2001, where you and the entire Senate voted on the authorization of military force, which gave the President George W. Bush then uh, a mandate really to do whatever he decided he needed to do. Did you think then that it was possible that United States troops forces would be in Afghanistan for 20 years? Jonathan, I don't think any of us really um, could have foreseen at that time uh, what the next 20 years would bring. There was uh, a very strong consensus, not only in the Congress, uh, but also in the country, uh, to try to bring to justice those who had attacked uh, the United States and they were located in so far as our intelligence and every other piece of public information told us uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and remember at that point that uh, then President Bush did say uh, in addressing the Taliban, if you will break relations with Al Qaeda, you will not give them uh, refuge and sanctuary in your country. Um, just let us have them and that will be the end of it. And the Taliban would not do that. And it then became a uh, matter of trying to track down bin Laden and his uh, leaders uh, and eventually bin Laden himself hiding in Pakistan uh, 10 years later. I mean, I suppose what's behind my question is the is the sense that given everything that has happened uh, since, um, you know, the idea that for 20 years, nearly 3,000 American lives, the president now, Joe Biden, estimates that a trillion dollars uh, has been spent in the intervening 20 years. Do you think now, and of course, we've got the hindsight now, but do you think, given that the Taliban were in then and they're back in now, that these last 20 years of of, of life and treasure has been a waste I would not say that. I I think we have to look at um, what also has been accomplished in the last 20 years. The United States has not been attacked from Afghanistan again. And in those initial months and years following 9-11, that was a very real possibility that those of us um, who were in positions of responsibility had to uh, face as to whether or not uh, there could be enough capacity left uh, in Al-Qaeda or like-minded terrorist groups to launch attacks, not only at the United States, but obviously uh, in Europe uh, with other of our, our friends and allies. And there were several decisions made uh, leading up to President Biden's decision to finally uh, leave. But the most uh, telling and consequential was President Trump's decision to uh, tell the Taliban that 
uh, the United States would be gone by May 1st and to sign an agreement with the Taliban without including the Afghan government at all. We hadn't even gotten that first demand from President Bush, break ties with al-Qaeda, which they have never done. Um, so there should be no surprise that uh, the Taliban uh, was well positioned once the actual withdrawal of American troops began to take over the country again. I mean, presidents are able to reverse the decisions of their predecessors. If you had been sitting around that table advising President Biden the way you were advising President Obama, would you have said, look, we haven't got what we came for um, and we should not withdraw? And actually, we do need that presence in Afghanistan, as you mentioned, to do the raid for bin Laden required it. There may be future operations. Would you have advised President Biden not to withdraw or certainly not withdraw now? I don't think he had that choice, Jonathan. I think that uh, it was way too far gone. uh, And I respect the decision to leave. But the Taliban had made it very clear there would be a ceasefire with respect to the American presence in uh, Afghanistan, not only the military, but also the civilian presence, which was considerable. Uh, But if there was any effort to go back on the deal that Trump had made, then that ceasefire would end. And that would have put President Biden in an impossible position because I believe that our casualties, both military and civilian, would have increased dramatically. The real challenge are all those Afghans who bought into democracy, bought into, uh, you know, changing gender roles, who were in government, the media, education, uh, healthcare, business, all the professions, uh, and particularly the women. And I'm afraid that all will be lost. So we do need to continue to do what we can to support those Afghans who are left and try to continue to evacuate as many who need to leave because of the dangerous position they find themselves in. Thank you. We have had many questions that have come in. I've got tons of questions I still want to ask, but let's bring in some of our readers and quite a lot of them are wondering whether for full closure there does need to be some are suggesting an apology by the United States for the 20 year long occupation of Afghanistan or a statement that accepts failure what do you what do you think about that that the United States making a statement I don't know whether the word defeat has been used yet but do you think it would be helpful for the United States and its leaders to talk that to talk in the terms that several of of our readers are writing in with? Well, no, I don't agree with that. I think what President Biden has said is that the most important mission uh, was uh, finished, that there was no, in his view, uh, there was no reason to continue a presence in Afghanistan. I don't think there's anything to apologize for trying to, you know, provide Uh, the kinds of uh, support for the Afghan people. And by so many measurements, for those 20 years, uh, a very big percentage of the Afghan people were better off. I want to move in some ways to uh, more domestic matters, but but there is a bridge between the two. There was a cartoon in the one of the American papers of two Afghan women in burqas, and one says to the other, "Pray for the women of Texas." And the, it's the a reference there, as you know, to this very restrictive, in some ways the most restrictive change 
in abortion rights in the United States since Roe v. Wade nearly 50 years ago. I wondered, because of decisions like that and others, do you worry that the United States might have lost the right, you could say, to lecture other countries or even to lead other countries on women's rights? You know, we all have to be aware that we fall short of our own ideals and values, but that doesn't mean we don't keep trying. And it certainly doesn't mean that we give up being aspirational, hopeful, and even optimistic uh, to try to do everything we can to uh, set a higher goal, even set a higher standard for what we expect. I've been saying for many years that one of the clearest indicators of threats to democracy, of the kind of growing threat of authoritarianism is what leaders do uh, to try to limit uh, the aspirations, the rights and, and opportunities of women. So, no, I think that we have a president who is very strongly on the side of women's rights and opportunities. Uh, and we have still a large majority of Americans who uh, have the same set of feelings and we should not be intimidated and we should not in any way give in to the uh, populist authoritarian uh, leadership and followers uh, that uh, are vying for Donald Trump's support and approval because, you know, that is going to undermine uh, freedom and opportunity for everybody if uh, they're not careful. Yeah, I think people will be fascinated to hear you talking about managing to retain some of that kind of optimism, because I mentioned there about Roe v. Wade being eroded. The law in Texas, for anyone not aware of that, is suggesting that abortion, in effect, banned from six weeks uh, after uh, into a pregnancy. And of course, there's, you know, that can amount to two weeks or less for a woman who know once she knows she's pregnant. Um, that that erosion coming 50 years after a breakthrough like Roe v. Wade, we've talked about Afghanistan, similar thing. You know, the, these are gains that in some ways somebody like you would have thought, you know, that you could tick that box 40 or 50 years ago. We've done that. And instead, here you are now, 50 years on, having to go back and fight that. And I, I was thinking that the challenges are not just without, they're also within. And you're obviously tremendously associated. You're, you, you're seen, I think, to embody a particular kind of strain of feminism. And I wondered the extent to which it depresses or dispirits you that feminism itself, the feminist movement, is now so divided. And I'm thinking of a book which is beginning to get a lot of attention by Raphael Zakaria called Against White Feminism, a, a woman of colour saying that the problem is white feminism, a division within the feminist movement. How troubled are you by that? Oh, not very. I mean, look, I think it's great to have vigorous uh, discussion and debate about the path forward, uh, what it means uh, to be a feminist. I have a very simple explanation, which is that, uh, you know, uh, women are entitled to equal rights and opportunities to men in every aspect of society. Uh, so, yes, of course, there are much more complicated and, and uh, uh, difficult conversations around all of uh, what that means and how it's implemented. But when you have Republican elected officials uh, who defend the kind of draconian uh, anti-abortion, anti-choice laws like we see in Texas calling women host bodies, that's really a threat to all women. That's not, that, that crosses every color line and every other line. Uh, so yeah, you've got to be willing to stay in the arena.
Yeah, and I'm going to press this point though about the, the the division. I don't know if you've seen this show, The White Lotus, because you're mentioned in it uh, in the first episode. There is a it's to bring out the notion of a generational divide. There's a character played by Connie Britton who idolizes Hillary Clinton and just thinks Hillary Clinton is what it's about, and her daughter and her daughter's friend kind of roll their eyes at that, as if to suggest there's a generational divide in how these two generations see. Uh, feminism and particularly and often that divide is over the issue of trans rights which you know the young generation think are you know are pushing and then on the other side the notion for uh, of feminism demanding single sex spaces for women and you know this tv show sort of brought you into that um and as i say i don't know if you saw it but it seemed to me a moment and i wonder what you think of that divide and whether it is difficult for feminism and where you yourself stand whether for example you can say as i think those young characters in that show would want you to say trans women are women is that a sentence you can say the expansion of lgbtq rights has been phenomenal it's probably the fastest moving civil rights movement in 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 human history But I was around when there were schools I couldn't go to because I was a woman, where there were jobs I couldn't apply to because I was a woman, where there was a very clear distinction between what was appropriate and not appropriate for a woman in the workforce. Um, And, you know, so for me and for someone like Connie Britton, uh, sort of close to my uh, generational uh, experience, we remember all of that. You know, I was an adult woman when Roe v. Wade was decided. Um, And and like most women of, you know, my generation, uh, we we knew the terrible stories about back alley abortions. So for us, this is very real. It is part of our lived and learned experience. And I don't think there should be any kind of conflict between expanding rights and and recognizing identity and the rest. But there needs to be a recognition that the fights we thought had been won back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s are still under attack from those who do not want to see those really fundamental changes that young women today kind of take for granted. And so within those rights that still have to be fought for and protected, would that include, for example, rights determined by sex rather than gender for female only spaces. Let's, you know, a lot of this is situational and and what we want is to protect and and nurture the the rights and opportunities of all women and girls. And in some cases that's as basic as keeping them safe when they are out in public. Uh so, you know, I'm I'm going to listen and learn as a lot of, you know, very, you know, really determined and strong women on the front lines, literally across the globe, try to tackle these issues. Patsy Hickman writes, now that President Biden has smashed the age barrier for the presidency, please would you smash the remaining shards for women. I think Patsy might be thinking of the glass ceiling that was shattered into a million pieces. Will you run? We know it's exhausting 
uh, and you've had bad luck, but this is important and it is your time, says Patsy Hickman. And I would add to that that, of course, Joe Biden did run three times and got there in the end and you have only run twice. What do you think? I, thank you, Patsy, for that vote of confidence. That <laughs> really uh, is very meaningful, but I have no uh, intention or plan uh, to uh, run again. I'm going to do everything I possibly can uh, to elect people who uh, I think are right for the country. And it won't surprise you to hear that uh, I think the Republican Party has literally lost its mind. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, working very hard to elect Democrats from the White House, you know, all the way down the ballot. You once said something that really interested me. It it interested me at the time, and I looked at it again, and it interested me again. You said, I'm not a natural politician, in case you haven't noticed, like my husband or President Obama. And I wondered what you had in mind, what your image of a natural politician was, and whether, and I know we're going back to the gender thing, but whether in a way the natural politician template in your mind is quite a male template. I mean, are there women who you would say, yeah, that's a natural politician in a way that I, Hillary Rodham Clinton, am not a natural politician? No, it really is more about the um, the image of a, quote, natural politician that most people have in their heads. And, you know, when, when I was running, um, occasionally uh, people would approach me or somebody I was working for and they would say, you know, I want her to change the way she speaks or I, I want her to, you know, do this or that. And my staff got very used to it and their their reaction always was to ask, well, who do you have in mind? And they would say, well, she needs to talk like her husband or she needs to talk like, uh, you know, President Obama. And they would say, well, tell us a woman she needs to talk like. And literally people would be dumbfounded. So I, I was making the point that, look, I was trying to become president, which in our country is head of state as well as head of government. I therefore would have been, quote, commander in chief, which is the role, one of the roles the president plays. And, you know, I knew that I had to overcome so much of this embedded view about what a leader looks like, what a leader sounds like. And I was trying to kind of get people to question their internal uh, views of what it, a leader looked like and sounded like. And but but what was the answer to your own question to those women when I know you, it was your staff who would say to people, so who's the woman? Do you see a woman around who fits that kind of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, natural politician template? Or is the only way actually America's going to elect a woman president is when it finally gets rid of that template altogether? I was on the front lines of people's consciousness. And so if they didn't like my hairstyle or they didn't like my voice or whatever it is, it was all, you know, focused on me. Now we have many more women who are out there, who are competing, who are in the public awareness. You know, men run for office. They're all sizes and shapes and frankly, hairstyles and everything else. But they all have the benefit of being, you know, the, the male uh, in the arena. And so now we're going to have different women who are going to be taller and shorter and different hairstyles and wear pants, wear skirts, whatever. I think that will go a long way toward beginning to break down the stereotype uh, because, oh, OK, I, yeah, I like so and so. She's my governor. She's my senator. She's my vice president. Oh, OK. And there's enough women in the you know, arena, so to speak, that it can begin to undermine, there's only one way to look at 
the highest office in our land, and that is through a male perspective. You know, the other thing we should always say about this before we get carried away with the idea that the country wasn't couldn't accept it, etc. You did win the popular vote. You did win three million more votes than than your opponent. And so, you know, before we overanalyze America's unwillingness to embrace a woman president, you know, electorally, millions more voted for a woman president than voted for Donald Trump. It's just you it's just you have a slightly messed up system. You could have someone who wins by nearly ten million votes and still lose the Electoral College under our crazy dysfunctional system, which is a remnant of, you know, frankly, uh, compromises with slave states. Should scrapping the Electoral College be the number one priority for Democrats uh, from now on? Well, I I came out in favor of scrapping it in 2000 before I had any reason to believe it would affect me because of what it did to uh, Al Gore. Al Gore won the popular vote. I won the popular vote. Neither of us ended up in the White House. How bizarre is that? And so I think it should go. It will be practically impossible because it's embedded in the Constitution. So we've got to do everything we can to prevent the Republicans from changing the laws that govern elections in the states to try to make it impossible for Democrats to win again. We've only got a few minutes left, but there's obviously I've got so much I want to ask you. But just one on this point, because you mentioned it and, you know, Al Gore and you, you said earlier in our conversation that, you know, not a day went by while Donald Trump was president where you didn't ask yourself those questions. Just on a human level, almost as Hillary Clinton, the person rather than, you know, the politician. What does that do to you? Uh, does, did it, does it still gnaw away at you? Those, you know, are you sometimes thinking that rally we did, if only we hadn't done it in Cleveland, we should have done it in Madison, Wisconsin. Does that happen? Do you sort of go over it and over it and over it? Or can you let go of it and move on on a human level? Well, I wrote a book about it um, because when it happened, uh, I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't understand how... Uh, we were so off in all of our uh, analyses and all of our polling and research. I didn't understand the full extent of voter suppression, both in person and online. So I, I didn't know all of that uh, when it happened. So I spent about six months writing a book called What Happened? And I think it stands up really well. But once I did that, it was cathartic for me. Um, and what I turned my attention to was trying to literally sound the alarm so that it wouldn't happen again. We are still struggling with disinformation online. That that relates, this is going to have to be our last question. We've got just a few seconds left, but it does relate to this. Do you ever worry that the United States might be entering a kind of twilight period, a period of decline? And the reason I ask this is there's the defeat in Afghanistan. There's what you've just been talking about, which is half the society does not seem to believe in science, refusing to get vaccinated. You have a situation where one of the two main parties by by all by, by what you've said to us tonight, does not really believe in democracy. Do you worry that this is adding up to a society in its twilight? And as I say, this is going to be our last question. So this might be also your closing thought to us, Hillary Clinton. No, I don't. I don't believe that. But I do believe we are in a struggle for the future of our country. Uh, the very ambitious, bold plans that uh, President Biden has put forward 
investing in research, in infrastructure, in supporting families is exactly what our country needs to go forward with confidence and, and more equality and more justice into the future. And the other side wants to stop that. So yes, I, I think we're in a monumental, critically important political struggle right now. The other side wants to rule by minority. It has a very powerful weapon in the filibuster in the Senate to rule by minority. It wants to change election laws so that it doesn't lose elections despite what the will of the people might be. So this is a, this is a, a central struggle. Um, but I don't think it's in any way a twilight. I think it's a very out in the open and the bright light of struggle that we need to make sure people understand what's at stake and enlist as many people as we possibly can uh, to be uh, successful in fighting back this revanchist uh, uh, obstructionist agenda that the other side is promoting. Our special guest this evening, marking 20 years since 9-11 with us. A big, big thank you to you, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks to The Guardian. And that is all from me this week. For anyone who wants to catch up on the latest in UK politics, do make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of Politics Weekly. And a little request. I always really enjoy reading your comments and suggestions when you send them in. But if you feel like telling other listeners how much you like this podcast, please do subscribe and review Politics Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Esther Opoku-Jenny, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please take care of yourselves, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.